Welcome to the CSC Podcast. I'm Phil Haas, Director of Marketing and Communications for Classic Stage Company. On today's episode, we'll speak with actor Barzan Akhavan, who recently appeared in our production of Macbeth and the Public Theater and WNYC's free Shakespeare on the Radio production of Richard II. We'll chat about what it's like performing in classic plays all around the country, and also talk about his involvement in Oregon Shakespeare Festival's groundbreaking production of the musical Oklahoma from 2018. That's all coming up on the CSC Podcast. CSC has recently launched the Coming Back Stronger campaign to raise funds to secure the long-term success and financial health of the company. The Coming Back Stronger campaign is a place for donors of all levels to show their support for CSC's work and mission and will ensure that CSC can reopen after the COVID-19 shutdown stronger than before. Coming Back Stronger means expanding our artistic programming to reflect all voices. It means welcoming all audiences to a safe space means addressing the immediate financial impact of the shutdown and securing the future. The Coming Back Stronger campaign begins with you. Gifts of $50 or above will be recognized on our virtual donor wall. Find out more about the Coming Back Stronger campaign online at classicstage.org slash comingbackstronger. Actor Barzan Akhavan is familiar to classic stage audiences for his role as Macduff in our 2019 production of Shakespeare's Macbeth, which also featured Corey Stoll in the title role. In New York, Barzan has also performed in the Broadway production of Network and last year's free Shakespeare on the radio production of Richard II, which was produced by the Public Theater and WNYC Public Radio. Barzan has performed in regional theaters across the country, and has spent five seasons with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, four seasons with the Lake Tahoe Shakespeare Festival, and one season with the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. Hi, Barzin. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Phil. This is awesome. Yeah, it's fun. Um, all right, so let's dive in. So uh, uh, I would love to ask you, you've had a tremendous amount of experience act- acting in classic plays around the country, four seasons with OSF, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, you worked at Lake Tahoe Shakespeare Festival, Colorado Shakespeare, Seattle Shakespeare, recently did Macbeth with us here at Classic Stage. So first off, I'd just like to ask you, how did you find your love or your passion for for classical theater, classical text? That's a great question. Um, I, you know, I immigrated to the United States in uh, 1980 uh, via uh, Berlin, uh, Germany, but I'm Iranian. Both my parents are Iranian and we had... Um, my uncle, who has passed away, but a wonderful man, um, was living in a suburb of Seattle, Washington, and we moved there. And I was exposed to theater um, by my elementary school. They took us to a production of the Seattle Children's Theater's uh, production of, I, there's a couple that we saw, but I can't remember. It was like the Ice Queen, I think, was the one. <laughs> and I truly fell in love. I like and, and a production of Pinocchio that I can remember. And this was when the Seattle Children's Theater was um, in the old Poncho Theater at the Woodland Park Zoo. The, the, you know, only people from Seattle are going to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but um, because now they have a beautiful facility. Um, it's one of the top children's theaters in the country. But um, so I, I fell in love with... Um, 
just the theatricality and performance and immersion. Uh, and then um, when I was in the ninth grade, I was in a, you know, in my drama class at Linwood High School. And my wonderful drama teacher, I love you, Jody Pittis, if you ever listen to this, uh, you changed my life. Uh, Haugen was her name at the time, but uh, her name was Jody Pittis. And she took us uh, to a production of Much Ado About Nothing at the Seattle Repertory Theater. And we w came in and it was, you know, a student, you know, matinee. So, and the, the rep at the Bagley Wright can hold a thousand, you know, almost people. So there's all these kids and the energy of a student matinee and, you know, the kind of rambunctiousness. And we were the drama kids. And I thought this, you know, we're going to show off and we're going to, you know, and the lights go down and the show starts and they start speaking. And I didn't understand a single word they were saying. Like it was, I, and I was so embarrassed and I thought it was um, like all these flashbacks of um, not understanding the language when I first came to the United States. And I thought it was though, I thought it was that I thought, oh my Lord, this is the most heightened form of the English language. And I don't understand it because I'm a foreigner and I learned English as my third language. Uh, and I still don't have a mastery of it. And that's why I'm not getting it. And people were laughing and I'm like, and I just laughed when everyone else laughed. And I was so embarrassed. And at intermission, I was in the bathroom. I was crying and I wanted to leave. And I just, I couldn't believe like this thing that I found, which was drama I, in, in school. I thought I was like, I'm good at this. And I love this. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden it's like, no, you're not. And so I, I came into the second act and lights go down. And if you, you know, know much ado, the second act usually starts with, uh, Dogberry and Verges's entrance. And that actor that was playing Dogberry, I don't know who it is. I, I need to look that up because that man truly changed everything for me. Everything he did, everything he said made complete sense to me. I understood that he, the malaprisms, you know, not that I knew what a malaprism was at the time or, or being able to put that word around it, but I understood he was saying things wrong and people were de like just having to deal with this man, this incompetent man that had a very good heart and nature about what he wanted to do. Like he was playing intention. He was playing action. As Hamlet says, suit the word to the action, the action to the word. Right. And he did it. And I, I laughed. I started crying. I was laughing <laughs> so hard. And then I realized it wasn't that it was just maybe I couldn't tune myself to the whatever. I'm not taking anything away from those actors that were playing in the first act, but this man had a found a way of, um, streamlining the language to me and the playing of the language. And from that moment on, I became obsessed with it. I tried to follow, um, a lot of, I was so lucky in the Seattle area um, to have incredible uh, classic performers, uh, Larry Ballard, um, uh, John Procaccino, uh, Bob Wright, Marianne Owen, uh, these real, Michael Winters, mm. incredible regional theater actors. And most of them, you know, we were lucky because we were so close uh, to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and OSF that that pipeline, the I-5 pipeline that I talk about is very, you know, a lot yeah. of, Denny, you know, Denny Arndt and all these people that, um, 
you know, I'm so upset that I'm just mentioning all these men names, but they were just so dominating for me in my life at that time. I, um, David Scully, ooh, God, this played an incredible baroon when I was in uh, at the Bathhouse Theater. It's uh, in, right, right on Green Lake, and uh, these these men made me want to become an actor. They ma- made me want to um, master this language uh, the way that they had, and and um, and because I was a student of English itself in terms of being a um, an immigrant. I think that was the other hurdle uh, that I wanted to overcome. I thought that if um, if I am able to um, gain a mastery of this or become better at it, I should just say better at it um, and understand it better, um, it will help me in my you know personal life as yeah. well too. If that makes sense. No, it does, and it really. I mean, what a what a way to speak about the the real emphasis and the real purpose of student matinees. Oh. I mean, I mean, it's it it has the ability to change a life, not just someone who's interested in, in theater necessarily, but it it has that ripple effect in so in so many ways. I couldn't agree more. All of us that are in the theater, I think, can reflect back to a student matinee. But I would urge you to think back to a classmate um, mm. that was with you, and that 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 experience might have changed them too because it obviously did for us yeah. it obviously you know we saw something uh, a representation or a feeling or whatever it was that made us say ooh this is something that i want to do or this is something i'd like to try or this is something that i have to do but for them uh they could i bet go back and say oh yeah i saw one play my it was good it was like you know my best friend in the eighth grade and you know we continue to be uh friends to this day um i think he remember he said to me i've seen one play in my life it was in high school uh, i went to a student matinee or something i said what was it he said waiting for godot and i was like Oh my God! Could you imagine if that was your one theatrical experience? <laughs> wow, that's impressive. <laughs> um, so, th- th- how quickly did did that evolve into then a career for you? How what was that pipeline? Um, all through high school, I was you know president of my drama club. I just loved it. I I loved every aspect of it. I mean, I did a high school Shakespeare play. I did uh, Midsummer, my senior year. We finally convinced my uh, high school drama teacher to allow us to do that. And then um, my junior year of college, uh, they decided to do The Tempest. And uh, that I got cast as Caliban. And it created a lifelong obsession, both with Shakespeare and with the, 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 the role of Caliban itself. I've, I've told many people that if somebody offered me a, a lifetime contract, uh, to play Caliban, uh, and it, you know, it could pay my bills and, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, progress my, you know, like it was like a thing that where you would get a raise or something like that. Mm-hmm. I would sign it tomorrow. I just, I'm obsessed with the role. I'm obsessed with the language. What's, what's of, it about that part? What, 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 what speaks uh, to you there? Uh, it was so, so many things with the experience of it. I think in, a, in, in the nutshell, it's, 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 um, Caliban, uh, the the line uh, you taught me language and my profitant is I know how to curse the red plague rid you for learning me your language and there was something that I really connected with as an immigrant and having to learn English as we had come back from before because my you know my mother tongue is Farsi and um, th- it created a sense of duality 
uh, within me, you know, or, or at yeah. least a recognition of that duality, I should say. Uh, and that's, it created the sense. It, it, it created that recognition. I, I was confronted with it, uh, and I was at a very, uh, uh, you know, when you're young and that point in your life, you're questioning everything. And, and Caliban opened up such doors into my own inner life of being uh, trapped, lost, taken, um, taught something, um, not loved, uh, stripped. I'm just using, you know, throwing out, uh, yeah, you know, no. kind of like kind of a poster board words or something like that. But, and then at the same time, uh, my grandfather came up to see this production um, that I was in at Western and I was so proud of my work in it at the time. I was very young, but so very proud of it. And he ended up saying to me, um, you know, I came to him afterwards and he doesn't speak any English. And I said, Oh, John, what did you think? And in Farsi, he in, went on to completely say the entire story. He said, Barzin, this man was a powerful man in his own land and he was banished from his land. And he came to this uh, this place where you were and this young lady was. And he pointed to the girl who played Ariel. And he said, and the two of you were, he made him your ser his servants and you had to serve him and, and things like that. And I was like, wow, this is wild. How? And then he said, you know, the only one thing would make this play better. And I was like, oh, my God, what's that? He said, if the king, a queen was a king. And I was like, huh? Because we didn't have enough men. So the character of Alonzo was changed to Alonza. <laughs> and I was like, oh, why, why would you say that? He goes, oh, because the king, you know, if he, he doesn't have the ability to produce another heir, if he doesn't have a queen. So if he loses his son, he can't, uh, the heir of the kingdom cannot begin. And he was talking about the Ferdinand track, you know. Wow. And in this instance, he's saying if Alonza is still alive. Yeah. She has the ability, the, the loss of Ferdinand isn't as great mm -hmm. because she still could have the ability to produce another heir uh, or something. I, I was like, well, <laughs> it's actually supposed to be Alonzo. <laughs> and he's like, ah, I, I thought that was something different about that. And this is coming from somebody, a very learned man, fluent in Farsi, fluent in French, you know, but not, you know, can speak conversational English. Hello, thank you. Where's the bat, you know, type thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but understood that much of the play from a college production, college production. I mean, and it's not, not to take it away from my classmates, but no. it's not like we were Juilliard or, <laughs> you know, we're just, you know, 20, 19, 20 yeah. year olds playing Shakespeare. It, I mean, that speaks just to the connection of these, of these stories and these works over time and what, and what they can do in such, in such a big way. Um, do you think, is it different performing? Yes, you were talking about this different levels, right? Whether it's a college performance, a professional performance, all of that. Do you think it's different also if you're doing classic work in New York versus other places? No, work is work. How it's received, perhaps different. Yeah. What should be work? What do you think that's like, how it's received? How what what What's the audience difference, especially for classical work? When you do something like Macbeth here at CSC versus if you were to do even the, the same production or a similar production in Colorado or someplace else, it's such a it's such a great question. Um, I will say the way that I could best phrase it is every place like New York City for those of us that live here and um, you know do our work here and li just live here. When we go to see the public shows at at the Delacorte or something like that. 
it's not just because their stars are there. That happens to be a byproduct that, you know, stars happen to live here and Meryl Streep uh, decides to do a show at the public and she happens to be one of those actors, right? But like, so that makes her a kind of regional star here. Yeah. What the beauty of, and I think about this is, if I'm right, this is purely American that what we've done with the Bard's work, our contribution to it, uh, like the uh, uh, like the American musical is our contribution to the theatrical canon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in our history setting, what we've done with the Bard's work is we've created the American um, Shakespeare Festival system. Hmm. And what that, if I'm right, you know, I know yeah. that there are other companies out there, the RSC, Stratford, things like that. But there's no amount of places in the world that I think you can go to. And every small town has some kind of version or within some driving distance. Now, I know that when we get to the America, even when we get to America's heartlands, you can still find. I mean, I have been some rural. Montana has a traveling Shakespeare company. And I've had friends that have gone to like these small towns in Montana. I remember my friend Michael Kane, who I worked with at the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. He said, we always, you know, he was the kind of actor stage manager. It's like old school summer stock actor stage. You're carrying a prop, setting up the stage, things like that. And he said they were at a bar afterwards uh, in a small town outside of Butte, Montana, not even in Butte. I think it was something like that. And he said, uh, I looked over and there was Sam Shepard drinking at the bar. And I had to, you know, I'm a fan. I had to say something. I said, wow. Mr. Shepard, you know, my name is Michael. I'm a huge fan. My, McCast and I, we just finished a production of All's Well That Ends Well. <laughs> and he said, oh, real, Montana Shakespeare in the Park, come on over here, guys. And had a round of drinks with them and things like that. Now, so what I mean to say is each community then, right, produces a fan base around it, especially people that come to it every Sunday. They look forward to it. That can be... The first company I ever worked for, Green Stage in mm-hmm. um, in Seattle. They were a pass of the hat type of company. Did Time in of Athens was my very first show with them. We started a rehearsal June first. We closed September fourteenth. I got paid one hundred and fifty dollars for the entire run. <laughs> right, <laughs> but I mean, we played to you know maybe one hundred and fifty people a night, two hundred people a night that were sitting in a park, but they were diehard fans. Yeah. And you pass the hat around at the end and, you know, people put in five bucks, a buck, 20 bucks. You know, I mean, this was you know, 20 years ago. So differently, they had fans. When I worked at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Dan Donahue, who, you know, played title roles, you know, you know, Oregon is very good about um, fostering the lineage of, of actors. Right. So if you come in and you play Romeo, there's a good chance that if you're good and things like that, you're going to play Hamlet, you know, you're going to play the, you're going to play the Scotsman at some time. You're going to play Troilus. You're going to move, you know, there's a lineage to these things, which I think is quite beautiful because a generation of young actors or young theater goers or young, just anybody goers gets to see you grow into these roles classically mm-hmm. at the same time. You as a, as a, as a person, as an actor, you know, they get to see a young Juliet. They get to see, uh, you know, a young Rosalind. They get to see her moving into uh, Lady Mac, you know, they yeah. get to see her play uh, Hermione, uh, you know, and then they get to see her play Margaret or something like that. All these really amazing, cool things because you get to see the the track of an actor 
their growth and then somehow you get to see your own growth within mm -hmm. that if that makes sense yeah it does so colorado has their own fans every every community yeah. has this um, i don't want to say a, a star basis but you get to get known for that yeah and in some way it reflects on who you are and who your community is then too and so what the taste level though of some what somebody might think is funny at Lake Tahoe, when there's 1,300 people in a bowl in hot sand, right, with drink Mai Tais in their hands <laughs> versus an audience in the Bay Area at Cal Shakes when the fog is rolling in at night, too. I mean, this, yeah. each, each different community is going to have a set of values that's different for it a set of tastes that's different for it. And what is received well in one is not necessarily going to be received well in another, you know, a Wooster group production of, of, uh, <laughs> of Hamlet, you know, or Hamlet machine <laughs> yeah. is not going to do well in a commercial setting like Lake Tahoe, where people are boozing it up and right. want to have fun. <laughs> it's, it's interesting how you put it about also like these, these niche communities in a way and how, you know, New York, we always think of ourselves, we're very elitist in New York, and we think, you know, the, the best theater, the best in everything. And it's the classical theater community in New York. If you go see classical plays in New York over years, you tend to see a lot of the same actors popping up again. Yes, they might be more well-known, like a Meryl Streep or even someone like John Douglas Thompson or something like that. Exactly. But it's it's again, it's that it's that same grouping of actors, give or take a few, that really do appear in these in these same classical productions every now and then. It's a great, it's a great way of putting it. I I really like that analogy. So, you do work that's not classical as well, um, and I think there are plenty of audience members who think that that the ability to do classical text so well and then contemporary text so well is is baffling to them how, how are you able to, to kind of do that um is your approach the same more or less for when you're doing classical work versus contemporary plays oh. or you know is maybe how you approach the text different but the the basis of the character maybe that work is, is the same what is what is that process like and what's the difference there between those those kinds of, of forms of, of plays that's such such a good question i Guessing classic, if I, you know, if you're just separating classic or yeah. modern or something like that. Heightened text. Heightened text. <laughs> um, I would say, I guess I look for instructions and roadmaps more so than I do in something that's brand new, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. Not just punctuation and where rhymes are or we're setting you know if we're looking at where the pentameters are what, what what's what's missing or beats are missing or not you know especially as i've gotten older i've definitely relied on that more or looked at that first more what, what's going on here uh, in terms of what's being said to help the thought through um, whereas i don't rely on that as much when I'm looking at something, I don't know. I, I only want to say that's really for me because I've been reading a lot more TV you yeah. know, in the past year. And uh, I, I'm not taking anything away from my, my modern playwrights because I think that they do that as well too. Um, yeah. If I'm reading a play, that's much different. But, but because the past year um, and the pandemic and everything, it's been primarily film and television things, commercial things. Yeah. 
I haven't relied on looking for deeper, I don't know, not deeper meaning, but a deeper set of instructions about what to do with this text. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, do you think the pandemic has changed how you'll approach plays when they're back on because of what you've learned during this time? Like this work that you've done where things are a little different, right? You're, you're doing more film, TV, and all that work now. Has that created the way you the way you're approaching your work, yeah. has it changed enough so that when you do get back on the stage, I mean, we, we don't know when that yeah. happens, but is it, do you think it will, if things will resonate differently when we, when we reopen? Definitely. I mean, it's because just chemical changes in our bodies of being in the same space together, honestly, Phil, yeah. like that's the only, the toughest thing is like my mind still hasn't really grabbed around the fact that you and I and John, could sit in a rehearsal room together and not worry about anything period yeah. you know with our masks or you know being fully vaccinated or something like unless we had the same kind of revenue or resources that television has about the testing features about like hey you and I just got a rapid test and we got a PV, you know, the other test the day before. Yeah. And we definitely know everybody now coming walking in right now is okay and good to go. Like that, I've been on television sets and film sets. Like I I, I couldn't believe like, wow, these people have some semblance of a, not, I want to say normal life. It's horrible to say that. No, I know what you mean. A, but some kind of interaction with each other on an everyday basis. Yeah. They're asking each other about, hey, how's the Blackhawks game? And, you know, hey, we got some burgers last night. That was great. Blah, blah, blah. Things that we would have normally, you and I live it's a block from each other yeah. in real life and <laughs> haven't been able to do that, something like that. And so I would think that the that second week, are able to get back into the room i will hang on to every word every sound i'll let it resonate through my body and yeah. through my bones just because the adage of you don't know what it, you know until it's taken away yeah I so true i i can relate it to um about 14 years ago, I had uh, some vocal difficulty and I had, a, I had a nodule on one side and a polyp on the other side and I had to have surgery. And like, I was in the middle of a Mary Zimmerman show. I just, you know, I was, I was so proud and was, I was created this whole new family. I had a year, 53 works, weeks of work, Phil, book. Wow. All, and without a tour or anything like that, like usually you only get that stuff on that, like one national tour. Yeah. But the play of Mary's was going around to three different places, Berkeley rep, Kansas City rep. It was ending at her home uh, theater uh, in Chicago at Looking Glass. Yep. And in between that, I had booked the world premiere of The Kite Runner uh, by Khaled Hosseini, Matthew Spangler's adaptation. Uh, David Ira Goldstein was directing and it was going to be at San Jose rep and at Arizona rep. Literally, one would close, the other one would start rehearsal on the next day. And in between this, my father had uh, open heart surgery. He had a heart attack and luckily everything, it was okay with that. But the stress of that, of going back and uh, to see him and then come back to the show, I hadn't slept for four or five days. My voice was in bad shape. We had a, a show. I went straight from the airport uh, to the you know, to the theater. I showered there straight on stage. You know, it was a three hour long play and it was a new year's Eve that night too. Oh. And I really felt it going that night. And, um, I stopped talking, uh, you know, late into the evening 
And in the morning, it wasn't getting better, blah, blah, blah. A, a friend finally said, you got to go to a doctor. We did. And that's when, you know, he looked down my throat and said, oh, you got to get this done. And um, I stopped talking for about a month and a half after we closed the, um, no, four weeks. Yeah, four weeks after the Berkeley. And um, I saw this doctor in UCLA. And I didn't actually see him until the very end. And when he came in, he, you know, all the other doctors put up the thing on the screen. He goes, oh, yeah, let's get him in right away. And I started to cry. And he looked at me, he's like, hey, kid, don't worry about this. Do the same surgery on you know, Justin Timberlake, Mariah Carey. You know, he's just naming off the stars. <laughs> and I was like, he's like, you're going to be fine. He's like, when's your next gig? And I wrote down on a pad of paper, I was like, you know, I'm playing Amir in the Kite Runner in, in, in six, four weeks or something like that. And he said, well, you normally I would say after the surgery, you know, no no talking for six weeks. But since that's how you make your money, I can't tell you how to, you know, do that. I'm not right. going to tell you to do that. So I'm just going to tell you um, after the four weeks, don't make a sound unless somebody pays you to make sound. And I was like, ah, I never thought about it like that. I love that. <laughs> really, you know, all actors are hearing this, you know. <laughs> Take that with a sense of empowerment, man, because I never heard nothing so empowering in my own life, man, <laughs> in that moment. So um, it, was, um, it was just the first time that I was making sound again. It was like to bring it back to what we were talking yeah, yeah. about. I, I savored every i'm not saying that i you know that we took for granted all our stuff at the theater but we did of course we did yeah <laughs> like right now i know that it's a new world and i'm so proud of the steps that are being made by so many theaters in the we see you movement across the american theater about uh people just coming up in ownership uh, of what changes that need to be made but i would say right now if I, I would do a 10 out of 12 no no problem like we get no complaints from me at all yeah. we're in the middle of a 10 out of 12 right now for those who don't know what a 10 out of 12 is it is when uh it's during like the the technical rehearsals before uh the play starts its run uh starts previews and it's when uh the the the, the actors the crew everyone involved works 10 out of 12 hours in a day and it's one of the longest days and it's quite taxing uh, on, on the actors, and there's not a lot. Of, there's a big movement right now to change that, so that 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 doesn't exist. Unless you anymore. work with John Doyle, because he doesn't really do it. Doesn't really do it. Thank you, John Doyle. Who really wants to a trailblazer before all? Of it. Like, well, you know, and John said that's you know for him that was um, when it, coming from a European. Yeah, which I was also surprised. I mean, it just shows what fundamental changes yeah. need to happen within our own American. Yeah, you know. I remember System. running into um, Bernita, the stage manager from uh, from I love, woman. I love her so much, and it was Incredible. it was it was during Carmen Jones because she was the stage manager for that, and I knew that the show was going to be like opening like in a week or something, and I was at the the Stop and Shop near near where we live, mm -hmm. and I ran into her in the food section. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon on like a Friday, right before they were opening. I was like. Bernita, what are you doing here? She goes, oh, John just gave us the day off. You know, <laughs> intact, but we're so ahead of things. I love him. I love him. <laughs> I love him. I love him. Can I ask you about Oklahoma? Yeah. At, at OSF, at, or at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So um, for, for people who are listening that maybe don't know, um, this production uh, I'm talking about, it's fairly well known. It, it was at OSF in 2018, and it broke... 
it broke a lot of boundaries because it had same-sex couples in the lead roles of Laurie and Curly, as well as in um, Ado Annie and, and Will Parker. Um, and Barzan, you played Ali Hakim, mm-hmm. uh, which is a role, role originally written and steeped in, in some fairly ugly stereotypes about foreigners. And, and I'd just love to know more about what it was like being in that production, which was which is really forward thinking and how you approach that particular role. Because when we talk about classic works uh, over the past few months on this podcast, musicals have come up a lot because they are, like we talked about earlier, the American contribution to you know the the theatrical art form and some of these older musicals are are american classics in many ways but oklahoma although it fits that bill there are a lot of challenges that come along with that show and i'm just interested in how how you explored that and what that production was like because as we look at classics here in this country there are certain plays that are just really really challenging um, and, and how are we going to move forward and either continue to do them or not do them? Or, you know, what 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 happens there? So what was that like? Yeah, I, um, I'd like to premise all of this by yes. saying I am totally, not totally, but I'd say majorly musical theater illiterate in terms of it, its history. You know, like, sure. I love musical theater. I, I'm not very, you know, because I couldn't do it. I, that's why I'm such a great audience of it like you walk and talk and you're on pitch at the same time and playing an intention gee you should win an oscar or something like <laughs> you were, are amazing to me and it just wasn't something that i studied as well yeah. i knew very little about the art form itself and its history um and I, I saw a wonderful pbs documentary uh talking about um the american musical and its contribution and and uh, i came to find out that like 98 percent of the 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 entire archive of the american musical was written by american jews uh who have come to the united states i was like oh this is fascinating right yeah. and then it talked about the trajectory of um of their messages that they were putting inside of these um musicals you know and how until fiddler uh it they weren't able to put their own culture mm. on stage in any way now there could have been like again i'm, I'm saying this because yeah. i don't know i'm not i'm not a historian but like a true representation of jewish heritage and culture not until fiddler but we had mixed ones yeah you know little pieces uh, here and there pieces yeah. or something like that colorings right coming back to it that the role of Ali Hakim was originally written I believe for that it was written for probably uh the the leading Jewish uh comedian at the time mm-hmm. uh you know to be able to be in this role and everybody would recognize him and the shtick that he was doing the the bit that he was doing uh you know the character that he was playing because uh, even if you, the jokes that are written in there are written are quite classic uh you know but i'm ch- lines yeah. and things yeah. like that they're great they uh has a a, a very uh beautiful um, american um time period uh of that type of humor uh written in um but I was I was worried, obviously, because it's written with incredibly um, what we would, through today's lens, look at as very racist or yeah. Orientalism or mm-hmm. prejudicial, you know, whatever it is. But um, what was beautiful about it was when 
uh, Bill Rausch, my director, when he first approached us, it was originally we did it in a uh, at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. There's a section called Lab, uh, where a group of maybe 25 to 30 of the actor of the acting company is in there, and we're reading a new play every other day. Uh, Dr. Louis Dathet runs it. And uh, we have a stage manager in there. It's wonderful. It's just a group. We have great snacks and wonderful playwrights that come in. She invites playwrights. And and basically, new plays get workshopped in two days there. And she gave Bill the opportunity to do this workshop of Oklahoma. And Bill told us what the concept was. And it was because he had this idea. Uh, he was in a production of Oklahoma when he was in high school. And he played Ali Hakim, <laughs> which is, if you know Bill Roush, that's a a stretch in itself already, yeah. <laughs> which is funny. But he said um, his vision came when he saw Ado Annie and Will Parker kissing, that, and he heard the crowd cheering or something like that, that he had a, a, a dream vision at the time that how amazing would it be if he could, um, it could be him kissing mm-hmm. another boy on stage and uh, that being the dream relationship and people cheering for it. And that's where his, uh, the, the germinal seed came um, to build this production. And and it finally got this, you know, permission just to do this workshop that nobody would ever see or never hear. <laughs> and so we, you know, we did it and it was interesting. We learned some stuff. And then I think two, three years later, I can't remember how many years later, we got permission to do it for the Daedalus Project, which is a, a one day AIDS benefit in Ashland, um, celebrating the, rif- uh, the life of uh, Rex Raybould, who was a, uh, a long-term company member at OSF who died of AIDS. And they set up, um, it's a one day benefit. Uh, the entire day of Monday is set up uh, bake sales and art sales and auctions. Uh, and, I can't begin to tell you how much there's a, a reading of a play that happens during the day. And then at night, the OSF company puts on a, a variety show um, highlighted by an underwear parade uh, at intermission that draws in up to $30,000, you know, in 20 minutes, all of a sudden, you know, it's amazing. It really is a, an incredible day. But um, we did it. Uh, as a one day, we couldn't advertise it or anything that, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein estate were like, no, 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 you can't, nobody can know about this. <laughs> and then um, we did it and it was just so well received. And I, I believe um, there were people from the, the, you know, the estate that were there yeah. and, and gave us, gave Bill permission. So I was just, I was dumbfounded um, that he, because this, you know, those, you know, how people that control the rights to musical theater rule that with an iron fist. You don't yeah. change any of this stuff and to have something so monumental um, change. And at the same time, uh, you know, we had heard of Daniel Fish's production uh, here in New York, which is an amazing production as well. But I, what was fascinating to me was I thought that there was some incredible speaking of to who we are as a country uh, happening at the same time, yeah. right? At which is what Oklahoma speaks to, if I'm right, again, like, yeah. again, the kind of look at this through classical is. text, right? <laughs> and so doing the homework of it is the story is actually Oklahoma is becoming a state. And there is an argument happening through the people that are the you know, the shepherds and the cow, hand, the cow hands and the ranch, right? <laughs> Basically. And, but it's a bigger discussion about homesteading, who owns the land and who works the land, mm-hmm. right? That That's the bigger question of the, of the play itself, right? Yeah. Talking about the two elements of, of where we are in a, in a, at the country at the same time, Curly has that line, um, 
that says when Lori's finally agreed to marry, says country's a change. We got to change with it. Yeah. And uh, when the two actresses were holding hands and looking out into the crowd, uh, and Tatiana, uh, when she said the line. I, could, I say it right now, and I could feel the little hair stand up yeah. on my arm right now. Every night, the crowd would go, ah, I'm not kidding. I am not kidding you in terms of the response was electric. Every Now, I'm sure there's people, obviously, the crowd that don't agree sure. with that. But the majority always came out with that. It was amazing. Now, I imagine in Daniel Fish's production, that line rings true, too, but in a much different way. In a very different way, yeah, yeah. Especially, I mean, the ending, of course, obviously, the ending is <laughs> yeah. much different, right? Yeah. But that line comes way before that. all, all that stuff has happened with Judd and, the, and the, mm -hmm. you know, this murder of Judd or the killing of Judd, yeah. however you want to play that. Before that all happens, right, that we're, we're leading up, because this is, kind of a comedy right so we're leading up to a good moment of resolution of if we're thinking of it theatrically and like a well-made you know play or whatever mm -hmm. it is right curly and Lori getting married is going to be our apex at that moment and before we sing the Oklahoma, you know the big which should be probably the final number right? <laughs> but it's not but that moment I think that that, that line's got to really ring true for the play to work. Mm. Countries are changing. We got to change with it. All the other songs and beauty and love. Yes, I agree. Totally. They're in there. Jokes are in there. Sure. Kansas City is in there. You name it. But if like, if, you know, I think when they teach you directing is like, you know, can you can you summarize your play, the theme of your directing thesis into one sentence? That would be the sentence for Oklahoma. Countries are changing. We got to change with it. That's great. And I thought it was really interesting to see these two different interpretations at two different times, you know? Yeah. So last question. It's the same question I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. If you had to choose one piece of work, play, a movie, a book, TV show, whatever, that you think should be considered a classic, but right now it, it isn't, what would that work be and uh, and why would you choose it? Because of the timeliness of it right now, I'm going to bring it up. And that's, and that's uh, I've been chosen. Um, I applied a little while ago, and I'm a Nike craft wear tester for oh. the Mars Yard 2.5. And it's a Nike shoe that's developed by an artist named Tom Sachs. And uh, uh, there's only 150 of us in the world right now. We're testing these. Um, and we're keeping a, a log, a track of what we do with them, what we're involved with them. And uh, Tom has even created um, kind of a conceptual art class around uh, us doing this. So every Monday we meet on Zoom, all, all of us around the world, and uh, he gives us activities to do, not necessarily just with the shoes, they involve shoes, right? right. So, um, you know, we're on the week four and week five challenge. Week four challenge was walk somewhere that you would normally drive to. And 
So I walked from you know my house here in, in Woodside, Queens. I walked all the way over uh, to the beach, over to the Socrates Park. Oh, wow. Walked through Socrates, took some pictures around there. Uh, walked to Costco, got a slice of pizza. <laughs> I walked to the Noguchi Museum, if you've never been on it, on Beautiful. Vernon Boulevard. Went to the Noguchi Museum, walked down, walked across to Roosevelt Island, which I had never done before. Walked around Roosevelt Island. I was tempted to try to get on the trot, you know, the cable, but yeah. I just, I'm still, mm. I'm not good in tight places no, yet. Not yet, not yet. And so I ended up coming back and I walked on uh, Northern all the way home. It was an eight, eight and a half, nine mile walk. It was great. Week five challenge was um, an architectural challenge. Go to five architectural sites. Tell us what, the group, why it's important. And I was debating, you know, because we live in New York City, there's so much. Also, I found out there was a giant debate in some of the subgroups about what is architecture, because most of these people are like real design student people, you know, and things like that. And here, I'm just an actor, <laughs> you know, they're like designers that make clothing and wood and sculptures and things like that. And so I, I said, well, it's got to be something that's important to us and important to me because he's very, he's Tom stresses that make that art that's important to you, yeah, uh, and, and share it with the world because that's what we need right now. And I thought, well. I'm going to do the th some theaters. And I, I went to the Delacorte and I started there because that would have been technically uh, the last place um, that um, I would have worked. Cause I, I was, I did that Richard the second last year at the, um, that Andre Holland um, was in uh, Sahim Ali had directed. It was uh, the co-production with WNYC. Mm -hmm. so went to the Delacorte came, walked down, got some pictures at the Belasco, got some pictures uh, at, um, signature, hmm. um, went over to Lincoln center, took some pictures over there. Of course, came down 14th street, took some <laughs> quick pictures of, um, my friend in Zeckendorf towers where, uh, the vineyard is because that was the very first apartment I ever, he let me stay with him for two weeks when I came to New York city. And then I came down to 13th and took some great shots of the door and, uh, the coffee shop, uh, to celebrate classic stage. My, my, um, true downtown home i mean that life-changing there and uh, and that's where i ended my my architect oh no and then i walked down to the public as well and i took some pictures of the public so and that, those will be on my map so what i would like to say i would like to include i guess i would say a tennis shoe i love that the mars yard 2.5 developed by tom Sachs. that's the coolest thing anyone said so far that's awesome <laughs> right, well, we're gonna put that that shoe that tennis shoe is gonna be on the reading list check it Yay. out and we'll write down maybe some of those places you visited too especially well i will tag you on my instagram post because i'm gonna be tagging all the theaters that i visited uh you know in terms of so it'll be on an instagram post right the classic stage and, and the production will be awesome and anyone that wants just come to uh, our website classicstage.org slash podcasts and uh you can see the reading list for this episode, past episodes, and see all the things that we're talking about. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Thanks for listening. For more information on Classic Stage Company, visit us online at classicstage.org. Once again, I'm Phil Haas, and we'll be back next month with another episode of the CSC Podcast. Take care. Thank you.